We've selected that verse from 1 John because starting next week we'll be beginning uh, a series through the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as we start this new year. But this morning, as I've already mentioned, we are uh, thinking about epiphany and uh, continuing our series through Isaiah during the seasons of Advent and Christmas. And so we are in Isaiah chapter 60 today, verses 1 through 9. Before we turn to God's holy and errant infallible word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord God of the nations, the star of your glory has arisen in splendor. The radiance of your incarnate word has pierced the night that covered the earth and has signaled the dawn of justice and peace. As we read and meditate on your written word, which gives witness to him, we ask that his brightness would illumine our lives and invite all nations to walk as one in your light. We ask this through Jesus Christ, your word made flesh, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit in the splendor of eternal light, God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar. Their gold and silver with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. If you didn't see it and read it in last Sunday's bulletin, uh, as I've already mentioned this morning, we have again included the concise lesson on epiphany at the top of this week's bulletin. You can read it after worship today if you haven't already done so. But very briefly, epiphany not only marks the end of the 12 days of Christmas, but it is also the date that we typically remember the visit of the Magi to the Christ child. The Magi, or the wise men, as they are perhaps more commonly known, were Gentiles 
who were aware of the prophecy of a coming king, a coming Messiah, and who had devoted themselves to watching for the appearance of the star which would signal the birth of this king. And we might wonder how Gentiles from a distant land would even know about this prophecy. Well, it is likely that they knew of this prophecy by way of the exile of the Jews under the Babylonians and the influence of the Jews within the Babylonian Empire. Daniel, if you will remember, reached a high position within Babylon and was well respected there during the exile and likely left more than a good witness to God's power and goodness. These prophecies were also left for those in that region. But even after hundreds of years, clearly there was still the presence of those Jewish messianic hopes in these foreign lands. There were those who were looking for the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies. And we're told in Matthew's gospel that this star that the Magi were watching for did indeed appear just as it had been prophesied when Jesus was born. And Matthew recounts the Magi from the east seeing the star and following the star and coming to Jerusalem looking for the Christ child. And they found him in Bethlehem just as had been prophesied by the prophet Micah. God had been sovereignly at work through all of this, even including the exile of his people. Even what they understood to be a very dark period, a time of God's judgment, even that was a means by which God was spreading his glory and his renown. And perhaps you picked up in the scripture reading this morning from Isaiah 60, pieces of the prophecy concerning the birth of the Messiah and the coming of the Magi. We see the references to the coming glory of the Lord, understood by us to be an obvious reference to the coming of the Messiah. And we see in verse 3 the prophecy that the nations will come to this light. And we see in verse 6 the prophecy that they shall bring gold and frankincense and what gifts did the magi from the east bring to the christ child gold and frankincense gifts worthy of a king gifts that symbolize the wealth of the east and so when we read the second chapter of matthew's gospel we're meant to put the pieces together We're meant to see the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah as well as the other prophecies in Isaiah and Micah and Numbers. All of these being perfectly fulfilled in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and the rising of his star and the visit of the Magi who come bearing gifts for this baby king. But but here's what we need to understand. The coming of the Magi does not represent the complete fulfillment of this prophecy just as we have seen with isaiah's other prophecies these prophecies have multiple layers they weren't limited to their specific context which means this wasn't just about the events surrounding the assyrian or babylonian exiles 
The prophecies were pointing forward to the coming Messiah and the kingdom that he would bring. And so here too, this text isn't simply about Israel returning from exile and rebuilding their nation. In fact, it isn't about that at all. It it speaks of something much greater. It speaks of what the Lord would do for his people among them and in them. It speaks of what he would do through them for his glory. As one commentator clarifies, Isaiah has now moved beyond the issues raised by the exile to address the ultimate concerns of the book, the significance of Israel's experience with God for all of human history. And so this text isn't simply fulfilled with the visit of the Magi to the Christ child. The Magi serve as representatives of the reality that is to come in a much fuller sense. They are but a foretaste of the fulfillment of this prophecy, which is still being fulfilled today and will continue to be fulfilled until Christ comes in glory and establishes his kingdom in its fullness. Dearly beloved, the the coming of the nations to the light of Christ, the bringing of gifts to Christ and his kingdom, do not end with the Magi. They begin there and they grow from there. So this morning, I don't want to focus so much on the particulars of the visit of the Magi as we might typically do around Epiphany. I, I want to focus on the reality that they represent. I want us to focus on the promises found here in God's word surrounding the coming of the nations. And my prayer is that our hearts and our minds would be captivated by what God says here to his people. And nations shall come to your light. But to get at the fullness of the promises of this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60, I want to start with this command in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Now, this is a startling call to God's people. And to understand what God's people are being aroused to do, we need to first understand this light that the prophet Isaiah speaks of. It's important that we understand the source of this light and the way in which it draws the nations and then Secondly, we're going to examine the implications of this light. So first, what is the light to which the nations come? How does it draw the nations? And perhaps what this light refers to is obvious to us, but maybe not. I don't want to make any assumptions this morning, especially since the command to arise and shine sounds like, sounds as though God's people are themselves to manifest this light that will draw the nations to them. It might seem at first glance as though God is calling his people to pull themselves up out of their darkness and make something great of themselves. And if we aren't reading or listening carefully, This idea might be reinforced by the several times in this passage where this light is referred to as your light. Like in verse 3, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. But lest we be misinformed, the light isn't a light that Israel manifests. It, It isn't a light that the people of God create in themselves. Although it might be tempting for God's people to believe that about themselves. 
The, the nations should be drawn to them because of something that is inherently good about them. After all, God chose them from all the nations. There must be some good reason for that. There must be something that God saw in them that God's people just need to realize and develop in themselves, which will attract outsiders. That isn't the case at all, though. In fact, almost the entirety of the Old Testament is a testimony of God's faithfulness toward his people, not because of their personal obedience or righteousness, not because of some wonderful quality about them, but rather despite their sin and rebellion. God chose them and remained faithful to them for no other reason than his sovereign goodness and love for them. So God's people aren't a light in and of themselves. No, the light comes from outside of them. It comes from God himself. And we understand this, especially on this side of Christmas. The light comes from the glory of the Lord dawning on Israel. It comes from God taking on flesh in Jesus Christ and coming to dwell among his people on earth. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in the opening verses of that book. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He The Son is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The radiance of the glory of God has come upon God's people in Jesus Christ, revealing God's character in a visible and understandable way. Jesus Christ is the light who comes to reveal God's grace and truth to us. This is what the second part of verse 1 of Isaiah 60 tells us. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. God's people were sitting in darkness. By God's grace and only by God's grace, the sun of righteousness rose upon them like the dawning of a new day, scattering away the night's deep darkness. As John Calvin puts it, he, Isaiah, mentions that this light will arise from no other quarter than from God's smiling countenance, when he, God, shall be pleased to display his grace. I hope, as we have looked at Isaiah's messianic prophecies over these past few weeks, that we have firmly established this truth, that in Jesus Christ, the light of God's glory has been made manifest. But we see this morning from Isaiah 60 that this light from God is described as their light, Israel's light, because God comes specifically to his people and for his people. We really shouldn't miss or dismiss this. There is exclusivity here. It is a special privilege that God sends his glory to his people and shines his light upon them. 
Not all have God's light. Verse 2 tells us, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. This was certainly the case when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and it's still the case today. John chapter 3 and verse 19 is no less true today than when Jesus spoke these words, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So the light of God found in Jesus Christ still shines brightly against the darkness of the world, but many still live in that darkness. Not all have seen the light. There are many yet who have not had their hearts and their minds illumined by the Holy Spirit, have not been brought to repentance, have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And and this might be true of some of you today. So we need to understand that it is a great privilege to be given the light of God, to have your heart awakened to the truth, to know God in his character, to understand what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, and to be freed from the bondage of sin and death. Charles Spurgeon said it as only Spurgeon could. Oh, what a difference there is between the knowledge which God the Holy Spirit has imparted to you and the blindness in which Satan held you captive. Oh, the difference between the misery which conviction and despair had brought you in the peace and restfulness which you feel at this moment through faith in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Is it not true that your light has come and do you not bless God for it? Oh, methinks you must do so. This is a great privilege to have the light of Christ. So this light is their light because it was given specifically to them. It is also their light because even though they do not manifest it, even though the light did not originate from within Israel, God ordained for his people to reflect this light. The remarkable truth that is being communicated here is It is not only that God would shine his light on his people, but that God would make it possible for his glory to be seen in and through his people. They would be the lamp out of which his light would shine. And God would do this by sending his son to conquer sin and death on their behalf. But not only would Jesus be a propitiation for the sins of God's people, in order that their sins might be removed and that they might be reconciled to God. But listen to this, that God would also reproduce his character in them by his grace. He he would, by giving his people his spirit, make them able to reflect his glory, enabling them to humble themselves, empowering them to love others in a way that puts others before themselves allowing them to embody his grace and truth and justice. Then, as one commentator puts it, where there had been darkness, there will be light. A light that is not our own, but reflects the glory that the Trinity shared before the beginning of time. This is what is being envisioned here when it says in verse 3, his glory will be seen upon you. And we see throughout Scripture that God's 
purpose for his people is to reflect his light, to be a manifestation of his brightness, his glory to the surrounding world. As Jesus himself says to his people in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is who God makes his people to be by his grace. And Jesus would later pray to his heavenly Father in his high priestly prayer before his arrest and crucifixion recorded for us in John chapter 17. This is what he prays. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Referring to all those the Father would give to Jesus as his people by faith in Jesus Christ. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And dearly beloved, this is God's plan for his people and for the world. And so we shouldn't miss here the call to arise and shine. God's people are being awakened to reflect the glory that God has shared with them. Not out of their own strength, not out of their own goodness. But they are simply to do what they were created to do. No longer are God's people to sit in the darkness, in the dirt. They're called forth to shine God's glory for the sake of God himself being glorified. And if you haven't figured this out yet, this wasn't just a command for God's people in the first century. This is the church's calling as the new Israel. This is our calling. Arise and shine because God has been gracious to shine his light into our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15 then, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, shine as lights in the world. And a remarkable thing happens when God's people do this. Isaiah tells us that as God's people reflect the glory, God's glory revealed to them in Jesus Christ, now dwelling in them by the power of the Holy Spirit, the nations would be drawn to this light. As one commentator puts it, in Isaiah's view, the facts of verse 2 will produce a, listen to this, holy expected result the nations will naturally gravitate from the darkness of their own experience to the light that is dawning on Israel and again the logic of Isaiah's point must be followed do the nations come to Israel because Israel is better or more intelligent or more spiritual than they not at all so why do they come because of the light the brightness of the presence of God in the person of the Savior will be irresistible. However far God's people may fall short of all that God is, if they will only reflect the light of the incarnation in some part of its power, even kings will want to come fall at his feet. The nations, as another commentator states, come to where the truth is to be found. 
to the Lord, whose name encapsulates what he has revealed of himself, found only in Zion, in which they discern a divinely given beauty. And so this is God's will, that he would reveal his glory to his people by sending his only son to them as their savior, and that his people would reflect his light, and that by doing so, God would bring light in the into the darkness of the entire world. The light of Israel isn't merely for herself, but for others. As one commentator clarifies, light dawning in Zion is the first banishment of this darkness. It's designed to magnetize the world into blessing. The Lord starts with his people in order that that he may encompass the world. So God sends his light to his people, not just for their own personal blessing, but in order that they would reflect his light and attract the nations who would be blessed in coming to the light. And I think that we can see that this has indeed happened over the past 2,000 years. The, The light of Christ has shone on his people and then through his people, through his church, and it's magnetized the world. Christianity would, in just a few hundred years, conquer the mighty Roman Empire, and it would spread outward from there. It's, it's why we sit today on the other side of the globe as God's people, not as the children of Abraham by birth or blood, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But when the nations come, they aren't merely coming to gawk or be amazed. Isaiah also tells us what will happen when the nations come. He tells us what the implications will be of the nations coming to the light of God's glory shining on and through his people. And so secondly, what are the implications of the nations coming? Well, here is the promise. Not only that the nations will come, as if that weren't remarkable in and of itself, but that the nations will come, and when they come, they won't come empty-handed. They will come bringing gifts. There was a foretaste of this in the coming of the Magi, but look at what Isaiah says here in verses 6 through 9. Nations, even even those who have been enemies of God's people, will come from every direction. And God's people will be gathered together. Midian from the south, Ephah from the east, Kedar and Nebaioth from the north, Tarshish from the west. Nations will come from every corner of the world. This is what's being represented here. And they will come in many different ways, from ships to camels. And they're coming by any and every means possible. And what will they bring with them? They will bring every sort of wealth, precious metals, gold and silver, incense, flocks, rams. Uh, These are all the things that would have been a great value to these nations. They are bringing their most precious gifts. And and we need to be clear here, the wealth isn't for the sake of Israel. This isn't meant to be seen as some sort of reparation for the wrong that God's people have suffered at the hands of these foreign nations. No, Isaiah tells us in verse 9 that it is for the name of the Lord your God. These are gifts of submission, of homage, of devotion to the honor of God. And doesn't it make sense that they would come bearing gifts for God? 
One scholar notes, wherever people have groped in darkness, who have groped in darkness, find the light, especially the light of life, their reaction is gratitude. And that is what is described here. This is indeed gratitude to God for the giving of his light to illumine their darkness, for the blessings this light brings. When people see the light of God's glory displayed, they come flocking to it, and they come joyfully, they come gratefully, and and those who come in this way can't help but to freely and generously share of themselves. They can't help but to give themselves to the one who gave all for them to lay themselves and all that they once held dear at his feet. But look at what else they bring. It isn't merely material gifts. They're also bringing their worship. They, they aren't only bringing gold and frankincense, but Isaiah says also they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. They aren't only bringing flocks and rams, but also they come up with acceptance on my altar. These are gifts that are being brought and given as an act of worship. They are presented as acceptable sacrifices to the Lord to serve him. And God declares, I will beautify my beautiful house. Well, what is that referring to? God's house is the temple. But this isn't the physical temple in Jerusalem. This is referring to his people among whom he dwells. And he is beautifying them, not only by removing their sin and imputing his righteousness to them, but by joining all the nations together in his worship and praise. That is a a beautiful thing. When people from every tribe, every tongue, every people group, every nation come and together bow down before the Lord and together exalt his glorious name. And do you understand? Do you understand what Isaiah is presenting to us here? It is, it is a glorious vision. A vision in which the God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who is awesome in power, The God who is transcendent, who is over all things. The God who is perfect in holiness. But at the same time, he is a God who has come and made his glory known and shared that glory with his people. And he has revealed to them and through them the purity of his love and the goodness of his character. He has revealed that he is unmatched in his self-giving. And is it any wonder that people from earth's remotest bounds would come flying to him to throw themselves at his feet? And so what a great tragedy it is if the church, the ones through whom God has ordained to manifest his glory here on earth, that the nations might be drawn to him, bringing their gifts and their worship would, through their words and their actions, make God appear any less than all that he is, the Holy One of Israel. Raymond Ortland Jr. was certainly correct when he stated the church is the one place of human association where God's mercy is experienced. Every faithful church is a gateway into the future of the world. Church, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that God is doing this and will continue to do this through you? 
And he calls you to arise and shine. Do you believe that the world will be brightened through the church of Jesus Christ? I hope that you do. I can think of no better scripture to study and meditate on as we begin a new year. We're reminded of our calling. Winning the nations is the goal of the church. This is our task that the Lord has given to us. And we don't do this by our own cleverness. It isn't done by creative campaigns. It is done simply by shining the light of Christ, by being the church that God created us to be, by devoting ourselves to God's word, believing it, submitting to it, living by it, by loving one another earnestly, by bringing our gifts joyfully and generously to God, by giving our entire selves to the Lord in acts of worship. By being the church in the world, by loving others as we have been loved in Jesus Christ, by proclaiming the good news that the light of the world has come in Jesus Christ, but not just this, by committing ourselves to making disciples of every nation. Can we this day resolve ourselves to this calling? Can we make this our calling in this new year? Will you arise and shine Deeply believing that the Lord will use us and that the nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Uh, dearly beloved, we live in a very dark world, but this only means that the light of Christ will stand out all the more, will be shown to be all the more beautiful, will be all the more attractive to a hurting world if we would just reflect it by submitting ourselves to him. And as God glorifies us, may God himself be glorified through us. May he receive all the glory. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we again give you thanks for the coming of Jesus Christ who left his glory in heaven to come and bring your glory near to us. In him we have seen your light. In him we have known your grace and truth. So Lord, help us to see the example of the Magi who traveled from afar to seek the Christ child, to come and bring their gifts, to bow down and worship him. Lord, may we do that as well. May we seek him in our lives. May we enthrone him in our hearts as our king May we bow down and worship him. May we bring him our gifts. May we serve him with gladness. And in doing so, Lord, may you draw the nations to yourself through the light that we reflect. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to see the fulfillment of this prophecy in our own lives. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Philippian Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.